0: Nothing converts faith to religion quicker than a perceived need for power or money. Here on this glorious Easter Sunday, I want to talk about the impact of the latter of these, money, on religious institutions here in America, especially as it pertains to its relationship with the government. You see, a you-scratch-my-back-and-I-will-scratch-yours relationship has existed between the church and Uncle Sam since the earliest days of American history one that seems to fly in the face of what Thomas Jefferson called the wall of separation between church and state. Be forewarned that the facts you will be exposed to in this two-part series will likely result in a less-than-glorious feeling next time you are about to drop something in the offering plate or look at your paycheck and see how much taxes were taken out. Most people are familiar with the old saying, laughing all the way to the bank. Well, I would argue that much of what is happening with both charitable donations and public subsidies to religious institutions could be described as praying all the way to the bank. Now, I'm not implying in this statement that those employed as clergy or staff in religious nonprofits are just rolling in the Benjamins. That certainly wasn't my experience during my 17-plus years in vocational ministry. Rather, the original expression is meant to communicate the idea of a person, organization, or company earning a significant amount of money at far less cost to themselves than they are willing to admit. The reality that the public subsidizes things is not controversial. We subsidize basic infrastructure, public safety, museum, and libraries, and the salaries of those who represent us in government, just to name a few. I am also not here to argue against the public subsidization of private organizations that partner in the delivery of common social services. I personally feel there are a lot of positive examples of public-private partnerships that are resourced in part by taxes collected at the local, state, or federal level. Many of these private organizations even have a religious identification. What might be surprising to some is that we here in America publicly subsidize expressly religious organizations and activities. This is done primarily through tax expenditures, or what are more commonly referred to as tax breaks. According to the Government Accountability Office, many analysts consider tax expenditures to be federal spending channeled through the tax system. In a 2013 study done at the University of Tampa, the lowball estimate was that religious congregations benefit from these tax breaks to the tune of $71 billion annually. Beyond income tax, getting a pass on property taxes is the second largest money saver for congregations. One can only imagine how much property the Pope owns in the United States, and how much funds is diverted as a result of these tax breaks from sharing in the costs of local municipalities. Included in the $71 billion is $1.2 billion in subsidies for clergy parsonages, like the one vigorously defended by Pastor Rick Warren in his six-year battle with the IRS. When you add in the additional lost tax revenue due to people claiming their tithes and offerings to churches and mosques, temples, and synagogues as charitable donations, the actual figure is over $83 billion. That means that congregations have received a $715 billion tax break over the last 10 years after adjusted for inflation. However, public subsidization of religious organizations and activity is not limited to just tax breaks. They also come in the form of grants. This is especially true in higher education. Conservative Christian colleges and universities are deeply concerned about the prospect of losing significant public funding should Title IX of the Education Amendment of 1972 be more strictly enforced. Currently, many are granted exemptions, which allow them to legally discriminate in their admissions process based on religious grounds, while the school benefits from receiving federal Pell Grants. Now they want to ensure that they can continue to discriminate based upon their conservative views of sexual identity, even if a prospective gay or lesbian student affirms their general statement of faith and is seeking a non-ministerial liberal arts degree. In expressing their fears over losing federal funding for their sectarian institutions, Dale Kemp of Wheaton College admits that, quote, 40 or 50 or maybe even 60% of their budgets are really coming from the federal government, end quote. In my own backyard here in Northern California, William Jessup University is a recipient of this exemption, the end result being that 39% of their student body for the fall of 2016 received Pell Grants. According to federal public records, the university took in a total of $2,102,801 in Pell Grants during the 2015-2016 academic year so that they can, quote, in partnership with the church, educate transformational leaders for the glory of God. No wonder the president of William Jessup, John Jackson, so vehemently opposed 2016's California Senate Bill 1146, legislation that would have resulted in the loss of a similar state grant had they not allowed gay and lesbian students to attend the school. Of course, the external messaging was that this opposition was motivated by the desire to preserve their students' quote-unquote freedom of religion. I believe we've heard this line before in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a la Oral Roberts University. Aside from these public subsidies, Americans give a lot to their houses of worship. In 2016, they gave over $122 billion dollars. That's over double what Americans gave to education, the second-highest category for private sector donations. In the end, financial gifts to churches, mosques, etc. constitute 39% of all charitable giving. So the obvious question that most people want to ask is, where does all this money go? Well, my 40-plus years in church life, coupled with my nearly two decades of service as a pastor and social ministry leader, means that I probably know a thing or two about church budgets. Beyond my own experiences and anecdotal recollections, there is a strong consensus in the industry what big buckets most expenses fit into. An article in the blog for the Pacific Northwest Conference of the United Methodist Church citing a Christianity Today study broke down the most notable expenditures as such. About 50% go to personnel costs, including salary, benefits, and it should be noted about 4% for taxes. 22% goes to property expenses, including mortgage, insurance, and utilities. 10% to ministry expenses, such as youth and children's programs. And about 5% to missions, to include supporting overseas missionaries. After asking where the money goes, the next question people should ask is, what are we getting for this investment? Well, first of all, people shouldn't be automatically skeptical because the largest percentage of income goes to personnel. That's pretty much always the case in every industry, and as I said earlier, the compensation is typically very meager. But what is the outcome? And does it justify a combined public and private annual investment of $205 billion? In terms of tax policy and public subsidies in the form of tax breaks and grants, the argument for continuing these is that houses of worship provide communities immense social benefits. As an article by Focus on the Family states, churches and religious organizations, like other charities, provide a social benefit to society. They minister to the needy and poor in their communities, and they provide an influence on society that helps to reduce crime and encourage good citizenship. Now, I obviously agree that churches and religious organizations benefit society. There might also be some negative costs as well. There are a lot of so-called good church-going folk in the era of Jim Crow, and I have a feeling that black Americans in those parts might take issue with the social benefits of the racist ideologies that were often reinforced from the pulpit. But that is a bit of a rabbit trail right now. The question is, do the benefits at least add up to a $205 billion investment? Especially as it relates to public subsidization, I would also think that we should be asking how accessible to the general public are these benefits. As we already discovered earlier, religious colleges and universities are very happy to take public funds, but often do so while only allowing those who adhere to their religious beliefs and practices to benefit from this public investment. Add to this the historic advantage that Christianity holds as the faith held by the majority of Americans, and how is this not a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment? While this legal question is immensely important, I want to return to the outcomes. The previously referenced focus on the family piece bases its thesis on, I would argue, very thin and dubious facts. For example, they talk about the money saved from preserving marriages through church counseling, but conveniently leave out that the divorce rate among conservative Christians is arguably the same, if not higher, than their atheistic or agnostic counterparts. So let's just say that is a wash. Is there $83 billion worth of church staff and volunteer time, gift and kind, and programmatic expenses into ministering to the needy and poor in their neighborhoods and cities? Let's just do a simple exercise to speed up the process and this exercise comes in the form of a very legitimate dare. I dare clergy and churchgoers to ask this question. When it comes to your church life, on what do you spend your time, talent, and treasure? I believe that an honest answer to that question for the vast majority of religious congregations will be that they spend nearly all of it on expressly religious services that almost exclusively benefit their members. This is certainly my experience, I often tell people that my disenchantment with vocational ministry came with the realization that most of my activity ended up being dedicated to providing religious services to consumer Christians. In closing, I have heard many times a question posed to churchgoers that is meant to challenge them to have a meaningful impact on their communities. It goes like this. If our church were to disappear tomorrow, would anyone who does not worship here notice? Again, for the majority of religious congregations out there, I think that an honest answer to that would be, many, if not most, would not. Now, I'm not trying to demoralize those who attend a church, mosque, temple, or synagogue. I suppose I do hope that a secondary byproduct for those who read or listen to this piece is that they seriously re-examine their budgets. But the main question I'm trying to raise is this. Is it both legally and practically appropriate for congregations to be the recipient of such generous public subsidization? In Part 2, we will return to look at examples of how the government gets their back scratched by the Church. I will then conclude with recommended policies that I actually think will benefit both faith and our broader society in the end. Thank you for listening to this podcast, and remember that you can check out more of my takes on faith, social justice, and pop culture along with other life-inspired musings by visiting www.curtelewis.com. If you enjoyed and benefited from this and other publications featured on my website, would you take a few minutes to show your support? First, you can share it with your friends via social media, text message, email, word of mouth, pigeon bird, cave art, whichever you prefer. Second, if you're listening on iTunes, take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast and to give it a positive review. Lastly, you can help me to continue to produce these podcasts by making a monthly or one-time financial contribution. Click on support on the website to learn more. Again, thanks so much for listening.